Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to episode 254 of Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, where we look at mysteries from the twin perspectives of faith and reason. In this episode, we're talking about the Cash Landrum UFO event. I'm Dom Bettinelli, and joining me today is Jimmy Aiken. Hey, Jimmy. Howdy, Dom. During the Christmas holidays of 1980, two women and a small boy in Texas were driving at night when they encountered a frightening sight in the sky. It was a UFO blazing with light and emitting fire. The UFO blocked their way in the road, and they got out to get a better look at it. Soon, helicopters arrived and seemed to escort the UFO away. But their brief encounter with the UFO had medical effects on the three who saw it. Their lives were altered, and they spent years battling with the government in court. What happened in the Cash Landrum UFO incident? What symptoms did the three experience and what could be responsible for it all? That's what we'll be talking about on this episode of Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World. Jimmy, let's meet the people at the center of today's mystery. Who are they and what do we need to know about them? Today's mystery focuses on three people, two women and a small boy. The first of the women was named Betty Cash. Uh, Betty had been born in 1929 and she was 51 years old at the time of the incident. She and her husband had run a grocery store and a cafe near Dayton, Texas, but after they divorced, she determined that the business was unprofitable. So she closed it in early 1980 and made arrangements to open a new, better restaurant in Dayton, which she planned to open for business on January 15, 1981. The second woman was named Vicki Landrum. She was born in 1923, and she was 57 years old at the time of the incident. Vicki had a large family to support, and she often worked two jobs. One was for a local school district, where she worked for the school lunch program. She also had been employed at Betty Cash's restaurant, and she was scheduled to begin work at the new restaurant as soon as it opened. The third person was Vicki's grandson. His name was Colby Landrum, and he was born in 1974. When he was two, his grandmother Vicki received custody of him, so she was raising him and he was six years old, almost seven, at the time of the incident. So the three individuals we're focused on are Betty Cash, businesswoman, her friend and employee, Vicki Landrum, and Vicki's grandson, Colby. What led up to their UFO encounter? On Monday, December 29th, 1980, Betty and Vicki went to check out the restaurant that Betty was planning on opening in a couple of weeks, and they took Colby with them. Uh, Betty paid the rent on the building, and they decided to find some evening entertainment. Both ladies played bingo, so they drove to a bingo hall in Cleveland, Texas, but it was closed. Uh, then they drove to one in New Caney, Texas, but it too was closed. At first, they thought these closures were due to it being the Christmas, New Year's holidays, but they later realized it was because they were trying to find a bingo on a Monday when Tuesday nights were when bingo was played in the local area. They then decided to get dinner, and they went to a truck stop in New Caney. The restaurant was at the intersection of Interstate 69 and FM 1485. 
I should mention that in Texas, a lot of roads begin with FM followed by a number like FM 1485 or FM 2100. The letters FM stand for farm to market. And these, this is basically a state road system to allow farmers and ranchers in rural areas to bring their goods to market towns where they can be sold. I mention them because more than one FM is involved in today's story. At about 8.30 p.m., they left the restaurant and began driving back to their homes, which were 27 miles away in Dayton, Texas. Dayton itself is about 30 miles northeast of Houston. It's in a location known as the Piney Woods of East Texas because, well, it's a huge 54,000 square mile wood full of pine trees. My family ranch uh, was also in the Piney Woods, so I've spent a good bit of time there. About seven miles into the trip, there's a long, gentle curve of the road which turns to the south, and FM 1485 becomes FM 2100 heading towards Huffman, Texas. Betty Cash was in the driver's seat, Vicki Landrum was in the passenger seat, and Colby Landrum was sitting between them in the front seat. When did their UFO encounter begin? About 10 miles into the trip, Colby noticed a light in the distance above the pine trees, and they thought it was likely an airplane coming in for a landing at Houston Intercontinental Airport, which is now called George Bush Intercontinental Airport, and which was 15 miles to the southwest of them. But around 9 p.m., when they were five and a half miles north of Huffman, something startling happened. Above the road in front of them was an incredibly bright light, and at first they couldn't tell what it was. The light was hovering about 70 feet above the roadway, and Betty first thought that she would speed up and try to drive under it. But her car engine began to act erratically. Vicky told Betty that she didn't think it would be safe for them to drive under the light and it would be better to stop, so she decided to do so, but then the car engine conked out and they had to stop. They were about 130 feet in front of the light, and given the altitude of the light and Mr. Pythagoras's theorem with many cheerful facts about the square of a hypotenuse, they were about 150 feet from the object on a direct line. Betty and Vicky then got out of the car to get a better look at the object. Betty walked forward from the car while Vicky stayed by the passenger door. Colby was scared, so he stayed inside the passenger door, crouching behind the dashboard and peeking over it. The three heard the object made a beeping sound that turned into a loud, constant roar. Betty and Vicky were mesmerized by the light. Both were serious Christians, and they interpreted it as some kind of heavenly sign, possibly the end of the world. Vicky suggested to Betty that it might be the second coming of Christ. Seeing that Colby was very afraid, Vicky tried to comfort her grandson by saying, That's Jesus. He will not hurt us. She then suggested that in a few moments Jesus would emerge from the brilliant object. However, Colby was still scared and he urged his grandmother to get back in the car and shut the door. She decided to do so, and as she did so, she put her hand on the metal roof of the car and found it was very hot, because the object in front of them was throwing off a lot of heat. Getting back in the car, she put her hand on the vinyl dashboard, and it also was very hot. In fact, it was so hot that it molded to her hand, leaving a permanent impression. Vicky's total time outside of the car was later estimated at two to three minutes. 
Vicky and her grandson then waited for Betty to return to the car. There and Betty's eyes had adjusted to the light by this point, and they could get a better look at the object that was throwing off all the light and heat. They said it was about the size of the Dayton, Texas Municipal Water Tower. It was diamond-shaped, with the tops and bottoms of the diamond cut off. They said it was a dull metallic silver color. It had a ring of blue lights around the middle widest part, and the bottom of the object was intermittently emitting pulses of flame. Each time it would emit a big burst of flame, it would seem to rise in the air and then sink back down again when the flames subsided, suggesting that the flames were involved in its propulsion. Betty, who was still outside of the car and closer to the object, was getting very hot and felt like her skin was burning. So she decided to walk back and get in the car. But when she touched the handle, it was too hot and she yanked her hand back. She had to pull down the sleeve of her leather coat and use it to pull the door handle. It was later estimated that she'd been outside the car for five to seven minutes. Now that they were all back inside the car, what did they do? Betty considered restarting the car, turning it around, and driving off in the opposite direction. However, it had been a rainy day, and she was afraid that the act of turning the car around would cause the wheels to go off the narrow two-lane highway and get stuck in the mud. So for the moment, they waited. Very quickly, though, helicopters started to show up. They could see the helicopters clearly because of all the light the object was throwing off. Most of the helicopters were the ones uh, with two rotors. They were really big. They had the two tandem rotors, which is to say two propellers on top, though some were normal single-rotor helicopters. They were startled by the number of helicopters. Betty said she counted 23 of them, while Vicky initially thought there were 10 to 13 of them. The helicopters surrounded the object. They had the impression that they were intercepting and containing it or preparing to escort it from the area. And afterwards, the object began to rise in the sky and fly away, and the helicopters went with it, heading in a southwesterly direction towards Houston. Betty then restarted the car's engine without difficulty, and they continued driving home. They estimated that the entire encounter lasted for about 15 minutes, and they could still see the UFO and the helicopters for about 5 to 10 minutes afterward. But then they turned on to FM 1960 and couldn't see them in the distance anymore. On the way, they decided not to tell anyone what they had seen since people would think they were crazy. Betty dropped off Vicky and Colby at their home in Dayton around 9.50 p.m. She then went to her home, where she was met by another friend named Wilma Emmert, as well as her niece and grandson. And that was the story of their UFO encounter? That was the story of the encounter itself, but now a new and equally dramatic phase of their story began. Here's a clip from a 1991 episode of Unsolved Mysteries featuring Vicki Landrum and Betty Cash that shows what began to happen later that night. Emma! Emma! I need a drink of water! Emma! Colby? Mama, I'm sick. Oh, At one o'clock, Kobe woke me up crying, and he was begging me for water. 
Honey, you're burning up. He had a fever. Does your tummy hurt? And he had vomited yeah. all over the bed. I need some more water. I'll and uh, right away. while I was saying to him, I got sick. Finally, though, I got him back to sleep, and I went to sleep. And the next morning, uh, I didn't dream that we had been hurt. When I got up, him and me both was yet sick. The next morning, Vicky and Colby were still suffering from nausea and what appeared to be severe cases of sunburn. Betty? Betty, it's Vicky. Concerned, Vicky went to Betty's house to check on her well-being. Betty? Vicky was shocked by Betty's condition. Her temperature was dangerously high. Large red welts had appeared on her face and hands. All I wanted was water. My head was killing me. I could not get rid of the headache. I had an upset stomach. Just, I was just sick. I mean, completely. A fuller summary of the symptoms Betty Cash manifested is provided by George Dudding in his book, The Cash Landrum UFO Encounter. Her skin turned red and started to develop blisters similar to those caused from being sunburned. By the time morning rolled around, she became severely nauseated and began vomiting. Headaches began to set in, and her eyes were swelling shut. With the passage of time, she became weak, and her hair started to come out in patches. The blisters on her face, neck, ears, and scalp began to burst, and a clear liquid or blood serum seeped from them. Swelling developed in her face and lips, and she began to develop body sores. Her eyes were swollen shut to the degree that she was having trouble seeing. She experienced the onset of a severe case of diarrhea as more body sores appeared on other parts of her body, and her hair continued to fall out abruptly. And as indicated, Betty was not the only one suffering symptoms. Dudding continues... Over at the Landrum residence, Vicky and Colby each began to develop similar symptoms to those of Betty Cash, but theirs did not seem to be as serious. Vicky Landrum's hair also began to fall out, and she developed some body sores. Both Vicky and Colby Landrum started to experience some eye problems. Now, I'm not going to keep the listeners in suspense about what these symptoms suggest, because I'm sure many listeners are already wondering. I know that I wondered immediately as soon as I heard nausea, vomiting, headache, fever, and hair loss. I immediately thought of radiation sickness, or what is technically known as acute radiation syndrome. In medical terminology, an acute condition is one that comes on rapidly in hours or days, whereas a chronic condition is one that comes on over an extended period of time, like months or years. Since all three occupants of the car began experiencing symptoms within hours of exposure to the UFO, this would be an acute condition, and the symptoms they presented are strongly suggestive of acute radiation syndrome or radiation poisoning. Uh, this is a condition that's caused by exposure to large amounts of what is known as ionizing radiation. Ionizing radiation is radiation that knocks electrons off of atoms, changing the ion of the atom. So remember, the number of protons in the atom tells you what element it is. 
the number of neutrons it also has tells you what isotope it is, and the number of electrons tells you what ion it is. So ionizing radiation creates new ions by knocking electrons off of atoms. Thus, Betty, Vicky, and Colby may have been exposed to large amounts of ionizing radiation when they encountered the UFO, and that's what could be responsible for their symptoms. Acute radiation syndrome can be fatal. Did they seek medical treatment? Not immediately. It appears that they didn't recognize that they were having symptoms of radiation poisoning, so they didn't go to the hospital at once. Two days after the event, on December 31, 1980, Betty's friends were concerned enough about her that they asked Vicky to come over and take a look at her. When Vicky did so, she decided that even though she had some symptoms herself, the thing to do was bring Betty over to her home where she could take care of her. At this point, the story is picked up by Jerome Clark in his book, The UFO Encyclopedia. Knowing nothing else to do, the friends brought Cash to Vicky Landrum's. Landrum tried to feed Cash, but she rejected food and water and continued to grow weaker. Several days passed, and Betty wasn't getting any better, so they decided that they needed to seek medical treatment. Betty had previously had heart problems, so she had a doctor who was a cardiologist and who prescribed medication for her. But she was so mentally out of it with the symptoms she was suffering that she couldn't remember the doctor's name. In his book, Project Moondust, ufologist Kevin Randall writes, They tried to find other doctors, but none were interested in taking on a patient they didn't know during the holidays, especially one who had heart trouble. Landrum, brought in to help Cash, called the pharmacy, and the pharmacist provided the name of Cash's doctor. She was instructed to take Cash to the hospital emergency room immediately. Cash could not walk and had lost huge chunks of hair. She was admitted on January 3, 1981, and remained there for 12 days. The hospital that they took her to was Parkway Hospital in Houston, and in case that name sounds familiar, it's because, as we discussed in episode 15, after President John F. Kennedy was shot, he was taken to Park Land Hospital in Dallas, but Parkway Hospital is in Houston rather than Dallas. It sounds similar, but it isn't the same place. So also, the fact that they kept her in the hospital for 12 days meant that she was not able to open her new restaurant on January 15th. In fact, she was never able to open that restaurant. She was never able to work again. She was now occupationally disabled. George Dudding continues, Once Betty Cash was admitted to the hospital, she was administered treatment for the burns that appeared on different parts of her body. Nurses applied burn medication to provide some relief and to aid in the healing process. Betty had been a former patient at Parkway General Hospital when she had undergone open-heart surgery two years earlier. Therefore, her cardiologist, Dr. V.B. Shinoy, was the first doctor to examine her upon her arrival. Dr. Shinoy was unable to account for what was causing her symptoms. All blood tests, skin tests, skin biopsies, and even an eye exam did not produce any conclusive results. Betty made one big mistake during the examination. She failed to tell Dr. Shinoy or any of the nurses at the hospital about her UFO encounter because she was afraid they would think she was crazy. Betty Cash ended up spending 12 days in the hospital before she was released to go home. She was provided with several prescription medications to be used in the treatment of her symptoms. 
Betty Cash remained ill after her return home, and the headaches continued. After several days had passed, Betty returned to the hospital again and was confined there for another 15 days. So Betty had to be admitted to the hospital again, and by April of 1981, she decided to move to Alabama where she could live with her mother so that her mother could help with her recovery. At that time, she still had blisters and headaches and had 75% hair loss, meaning that she had just a quarter of her hair, which required her to wear a wig. In a 1988 paper, UFO investigator John Schusler reported, Betty Cash has been hospitalized at least 25 times and has had two operations for cancer after having shown no previous signs of it. She has had blood problems and trouble with her eyesight. Her hair has regrown, though in a different texture, but she's still very weak and has to spend a good deal of time in bed. And bear in mind that this article was published in 1988, so Betty had been hospitalized 25 times in just eight years, and she would go on to be hospitalized at least once a year for the rest of her life. What about Vicky and Colby? How were they doing? Much better than Betty, and you'll notice that the severity of the symptoms appears to be correlated with how long people spend outside of the car. Colby did not get out at all, and he had the mildest symptoms. Vicky was outside for two to three minutes, and her symptoms were stronger, while Betty was outside for five to seven minutes, and her symptoms were the worst of all. That also suggests that it was exposure to the UFO, especially without the shielding of the car, that was responsible for the symptoms. When it comes to Vicky and Colby's condition, George Dudding states, Vicki Landrum's illness appeared to be less severe than that of Betty Cash. She had some scalp damage, a 50% hair loss, reddening of the skin, and some fingernail damage. As a result of the hair loss, she had to wear a wig. She complained about her eyes burning and a film that was always forming on them. Her eyes were checked out by optometrist Dr. L. Steve Chandler. As a result, she was prescribed eyeglasses, which she ended up having to wear permanently. The doctor found the beginnings of cataract development that could have been there before the UFO encounter, but could also have been caused by exposure to ionizing radiation. Colby Landrum was affected less by the encounter than the two adults. His face had minor burns and he complained of a stomach ache. A few blisters on his face cleared up after treatment with baby oil. His symptoms lasted only a few weeks. In February 1981, Betty contacted NASA, which has facilities in Houston, to see if they could shed any light on what the three had experienced. And they were referred to a man named John Schusler. He was a NASA supervisor and an aerospace engineer, and inside of NASA, he was known to be interested in UFOs. He also was a deputy director of MUFON, the Mutual UFO Network, and so he and other UFO investigators began to look into the case. We'll be hearing more from John Schusler later in the program. What did Betty and Vicky believe had happened to them? They did not believe that they had encountered an extraterrestrial craft. For them, it was not always aliens. They apparently were of the persuasion that the Christian faith precludes the existence of intelligent aliens, and so they thought that they had encountered some kind of government craft, perhaps a spacecraft being tested, which could explain why they contacted NASA in Houston. Here's what Vicki told Unsolved Mysteries. I don't believe in the little green men. And uh, it had to be an object 
It could have been a spacecraft that the government was carrying, but our government was carrying it. Given all the twin rotor helicopters they'd seen, they believed that the U.S. military was also involved, and so they thought it might have been a classified project, some kind of test that they saw, but they wanted answers. According to Betty... If it's a top-secret object that's protecting the United States, then I could say I could, I could forgive them for that. But at least they owe us to tell us exactly why we were burned and what type of radiation that we were exposed to and how much. The reason Betty wanted to know what kind of radiation they were exposed to and how much is because this can be important for treating people, as well as predicting future medical problems they may encounter. So the two began knocking on government doors. In the UFO Encyclopedia, Jerome Clark reports, Cash and Landrum began a long, frustrating campaign to get answers from government agencies. After getting nowhere with local officials and military installations, they contacted their senators, John Tower and Lloyd Benson, who talked with representatives of the Department of Defense. The senators urged Cash and Landrum to take their complaints to the Judge Advocate Claims Officer at Bergstrom Air Force Base in Austin. In August 1981, they met with Air Force lawyers at Bergstrom. They were given blank forms and told that if they could find a lawyer willing to represent them, they should file a claim with the U.S. government for compensation for their injuries. They did file a claim, but it was denied four weeks later. So, according to George Dudding, The Cash Landrum witnesses obtained the legal services of Peter Gertson, a New York lawyer who was also a member of CAUSE, Citizens Against UFO Secrecy. They filed a lawsuit against the United States government in the Federal District Court at Houston, Texas, for $20 million. The outcome came on August 21, 1986, when the lawsuit was dismissed by a U.S. District Court judge. The reason given for the dismissal was the lack of proof that the helicopters were owned by the government or the military. The military had also claimed that they did not own a diamond-shaped craft such as the one described as spewing flames out of the bottom. And so the U.S. government and military never gave Cash and Landrum any further information about what happened to them. Neither did they pay them anything in compensation. What ended up happening to the three of them? Betty Cash later developed breast cancer and had to have a mastectomy. She died 18 years later in 1998 at the age of 69. Ironically, she passed away on December 29th, the anniversary of the UFO incident. Vicki Landrum died in 2007 at the age of 83, and Colby Landrum is still alive today and living in Texas. He's 49 years old. But the case continues to perplex people and be the subject of investigation. Now, before we get to our theories and faith and reason perspective, I'd like to take a moment to thank our patrons who make this show possible, including Timothy P., Chardux, Anna H., Ken M., and Blake P. Their generous tax-deductible donations at sqpn.com give make it possible for us to continue Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World and all the shows at StarQuest. And you can join them by visiting sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you by Fairvento Law PLLC, now assisting clients with expungements and set-asides 
of Michigan convictions. To learn more, call 231-202-3321 or go to fearventolaw.com, F-I-O-R-V-E-N-T-O-Law.com. And by Deliver Contacts, offering honest pricing and reliable service for all your contact lens needs. See the difference at DeliverContacts.com. Jimmy, what theories are there about the Cash Landrum UFO event? One theory we will need to consider is whether we have sufficient information to draw any conclusions about this case. Some are of the opinion that we just don't know enough to say anything for sure. Another possibility is that this was just all a hoax, that the women made everything up and got the grandson to go along. Then there's the possibility that the three misperceived what they're seeing. It wasn't anything exotic at all, neither alien or classified, but they thought it was, and when they got sick, they blamed the military and may have exaggerated a lot of the details. Finally, there is the possibility that they saw something exotic, either an alien spacecraft or some kind of classified government project. So what can we say about the Cash Landrum UFO encounter from the reason perspective? You said that some think that we can't really say anything definitive about it, that we don't have enough information. Who says that? One person is UFO investigator Kevin Randall. He's also a veteran with extensive history in and knowledge of the military. And he's one of the most fair and balanced UFO investigators that I know. I respect him a lot. But he's not convinced that we have enough information to draw conclusions about this case. And we'll discuss some of the reasons why in a bit. But in his book, Project Moondust, here's what he says in conclusion. Once again, we are left with nothing except our beliefs. Was the craft extraterrestrial? Was there any craft at all? Or was this some kind of elaborate hoax invented by the women, though neither has a history of creating practical jokes? Without more data, we just can't answer any of the questions satisfactorily. All we can say is that after four decades, nothing that resembles the object described by the women have appeared in the military aviation inventory. Had this been some sort of off-range experiment, documentation for it would have been found at some point. As it stands today, nothing has been found to provide a terrestrial explanation. Like I said, I respect Kevin Randall a lot, and so I take his opinion seriously, but we need to look at the evidence first and form our own conclusions. What about the idea that the encounter was entirely a hoax, that the women just made it up? I haven't found anybody who goes that far, but it's a possibility that needs to be considered because people do lie and hoax things, including UFO encounters, and the prospect of getting $20 million from the government could be an incentive to do that. However, I think that the pure hoax theory is unlikely to be the case for reasons we'll see, so let's look briefly at the next possibility, which is that they saw something purely conventional blamed the military when they got sick, and then exaggerated the rest of the details. This is a view advocated by Brian Dunning of the Skeptoid podcast. He describes his conclusions this way. As far as the diamond-shaped UFO spouting flames that forms the heart of this story, I'm not going to attempt to identify what it may have been, first because I'm in no position to have any clue, and second because its very existence stems from a single implausible anecdote. Other authors have proposed a celestial object, an aircraft landing light, a hot air balloon, all things that we know have prompted UFO reports, and that we know have fooled smart people into thinking they were seeing something extraordinary many, many times. And it's very possible that the three witnesses 
did see something like that. The other thing I'm not going to do is call hoax on this one, because that implies a calculated deception. It's a reasonable likelihood that they actually did see something that night. Probably nothing extraordinary, but something they personally didn't understand. And if there's anything we've learned from more than a decade of Skeptoid episodes, it's that people honestly and frequently misinterpret things and confuse correlation with causation. It happens every day. In my experience, it's completely plausible that Cash and Landrum wrongly, but honestly, placed the blame for their health problems onto whatever they saw, and even pushed the truth a bit trying to get the Air Force to pay for it. When you believe, in your heart, that the Air Force did something wrong that harmed you, you don't necessarily feel that it's wrong to exaggerate evidence, like seeing the words Air Force on the side of the helicopters, adding on symptoms to people who didn't have them, even faking sunburn spots on your arm, as long as it's in pursuit of what you believe to be a just settlement. Dunning's proposal rests on three premises. First, that Cash and the Landrum saw something totally ordinary that they mistook as something exotic. He names a celestial object, like a star, an aircraft landing light, and a hot air balloon, as possibilities. Second, that they got sick for reasons unrelated to what they saw and blamed it on the military. And third, that they then may have exaggerated the details of their case to make it seem more convincing. At least the first two of those, the misinterpreted sighting and the coincidental sickness, need to be true for his theory to work, and really, as we'll see, the third premise of exaggerated details also has to be true. So you really need all three to be jointly true for Dunning's theory to work. And let's look at that first premise. How likely is it that they saw something totally ordinary and mistook it as a UFO? Based on the accounts alone, not very likely at all. Uh, for example, they reported that the object they saw not only threw off a lot of light, but also it threw off a lot of heat. You'll recall that Vicky found the roof of the car was incredibly hot when she was getting back inside of it, uh, that the vinyl dashboard of the car was so hot it took a permanent imprint of her hand, and that Betty also had to use the sleeve of her leather jacket to open the car door handle. None of the explanations that Brian Dunning mentions generate anything like the amount of heat needed for those. Celestial objects like distant stars in the sky don't, airplane landing lights don't, and hot air balloons in the distance don't either. Further, the heat couldn't have been explained by the weather. While it does get hot in East Texas in the summertime, this was at the end of December, and we know what the temperature was that night because there are weather records. It was only 40 degrees outside. So if the three were telling the truth about the heat effects they encountered, there is no way that there would be a perfectly ordinary explanation for the event. That's why I said that the third premise was also needed to make Dunning's theory work. They would have had to have exaggerated the details of what happened to them. So could they have just been lying about the heat? There are at least two pieces of evidence that contradict this. First, there is the permanent handprint that Vicky left on the vinyl dashboard. This was not just something that they saw. When UFO investigators started looking into the case, they examined the car and they found it did have a permanent handprint on the passenger side dashboard. So there were independent witnesses to the car having undergone such a heat effect. 
Second, you'll recall that the object was said to be hovering over the highway and emitting flames from its underside. Well, one of the UFO investigators was NASA's supervisor, John Schusler, and here's what he had to say. We had done several interviews with Betty and Vicki, and then we went out to the location where this happened. They were very, very clear on where it happened and how it happened. Yes, sir. Came right over those trees right there, sir. They were able to tell us exactly where along the road that they stopped because there were certain markers that identified the spot. They were able to point out exactly what they saw, the object coming down out of the sky over the road and hovering there. They were able to point out a spot on the road that indicated that uh, it had been heated to an extreme level of heating. It was burned and it was very clear to the naked eye. Several weeks after we went to the spot and saw this burned area, someone came along, dug up the road, and hauled it away and replaced it with new asphalt. Uh, Some of the witnesses that watched this happen said that people brought in unmarked trucks, dug up the road, put the material on the trucks, covered it with a tarpaulin, and drove away. So Betty and Vicki took the UFO investigators back to the spot, and the road itself had suffered significant heat effects that were seen by others. Furthermore, others later saw people removing that section of the road and replacing it. They were reported to be working with unmarked vehicles, which could itself suggest some kind of cover-up, since road crews normally have either government or commercial markings on their vehicles. A cover-up could further be suggested by the fact that UFO investigators have checked with the county and the county doesn't have records of this part of the road having been resurfaced at this time. But in a 2009 episode of the TV show UFO Hunters, they went back to the site and took core samples out of this part of the roadway, and the core samples showed evidence of resurfacing. Whatever you want to make of that, we do have independent witnesses, both of the dashboard handprint and of the spot on the road having been burned. Even though you can always deny the evidence and explain it some other way, we do have evidence that Cash and Landrum weren't simply lying about the heat they encountered, and thus we have evidence that they didn't encounter anything strictly ordinary. Let's look at another claim that they made, which people have doubted, which is all the helicopters they said they saw. What's the argument that they may have been lying or exaggerating here? In the first place, there was a degree of improbability about the event due to the time of year. In Project Moondust, Kevin Randall writes, The problem is that the sighting took place during the Christmas holidays, and many military installations operate on a reduced schedule so that as many military personnel as possible can spend Christmas at their home or their home of records with family. It would be difficult to find enough pilots and aircraft to mount this sort of operation at that time of the year. It would require more than 50 pilots and then nearly as many other crew members, not to mention the ground support required. That's assuming that there were really as many helicopters as Betty Cash thought. She said she counted 23 of them. However, I suspect she may have miscounted. I could imagine getting an accurate count of a convoy of helicopters where they're going by in a line and you could count them one by one without losing track. But That isn't the situation that applied in this case. The helicopters were circling around the UFO, so they were moving, and they were being seen from the vantage point of a two-lane highway surrounded by pine trees on both sides since they were in the piney woods. So the angle of the view was not great and would have blocked parts of Betty's vision. 
Between the blocked vision and the circling motion of the helicopters, I can easily imagine Betty having counted some of them twice, so I suspect that her count is inaccurate on the high side. Vicky's initial estimate, by contrast, was only 10 to 13 helicopters, so it may not have been as difficult to imagine finding the right number of pilots, though it would have been harder in the week between Christmas and New Year's. There's also a second reason skeptics cite against the helicopter claim. After Cash and Landrum started knocking on military doors, the military initiated its own investigation of what happened. It was headed by Lieutenant Colonel George Saran of the U.S. Army Inspector General's office. Kevin Randall reports, Saran did try to learn the truth, contacting military bases in Texas, Oklahoma, and Louisiana. He checked regular Army, Reserve, and National Guard facilities. All denied that they had aircraft in the area at the time of the incident. The FAA and its various air traffic control centers denied any knowledge of military maneuvers on the night of December 29th. Saran learned and told Schusler that such activities would have to be coordinated with the FAA because of the possibilities of an aircraft accident. The military, when conducting maneuvers that require aviation support in a specific area, will notify the FAA. No such notifications had been made. So between the low probability due to the time of year and the absence of any records, some have doubted Cash and Landrum's claims about having seen the helicopters. If there was a UFO like this flying around in the sky, and especially if a bunch of helicopters showed up and escorted it off, you'd think that other people in the area may have seen it. Did anybody report anything like that? Actually, yeah, they did. Let's go back to NASA supervisor and UFO investigator John Schusler. In addition to taking Betty and Vicky's testimony, we went to every individual living within five miles of this area. At least 10 other people had seen the object and seven or eight other people had seen the helicopters. And their descriptions were all very similar to, the, to what Betty and Vicky described. Those figures are worth repeating. Of the people living within five miles of the encounter site, at least 10 people reported seeing the UFO. Seven to eight reported seeing the helicopters, and the descriptions were very similar. Two of the people who saw the helicopters were a police officer named Detective Sergeant Lamar L. Walker and his wife, Marie. Unsolved Mysteries interviewed Sergeant Walker, and here's what he had to say. My wife, Marie, and I was returning back from my mother and dad's, and uh, as we was coming out of some tree lines, I saw a helicopter was shining a spotlight at the ground and then I heard other noise of other helicopters behind it and about that time a helicopter started side slipping towards us with the beam hitting me in the eyes and I stopped the car because I didn't know what was going on. The helicopters were military and they was all flying fairly low to the ground and all of them had search beams on I thought maybe there was an airplane down, but uh, they didn't hesitate. They just kept on in the same direction they was going, uh, which would probably intersect the area where Vicky said that her encounter was. They was headed in that general direction. George Dudding notes that Sergeant Walker and his wife saw the helicopters later in the same evening, and he summarizes Walker's testimony this way. As the helicopter sounds became louder, he rolled down his window, looked up, and saw large military-style helicopters 
flying in groups of three, with each group in a V-shaped formation. The point helicopter of each group was shining a searchlight down on the ground as though it were searching for something. The helicopters were flying at an altitude of about 500 feet when he observed them, and were the type with twin rotors. In the distance, he could see more helicopters coming. Before his observations were complete, he saw four V-shaped groups of three helicopters for a total of 12 helicopters. So Walker counted four groups of three helicopters for a total of 12, which would correspond to Vicki Landrum's estimate of there being 10 to 13 helicopters. And Sergeant Walker and his wife weren't the only people who saw the helicopters. For example, John Plaster of Meyer Road near Huffman, Texas, was outside his house with his 10-year-old son, Brian, playing with Christmas toys on the night of December 29, 1980, when they saw several Army CH-47 Chinook helicopters flying overhead. He just wrote it off as something the Army was doing that night. John Schusler also indicated that at least 10 people had seen the UFO itself. George Dudding provides information on several of them. Nellie Zedek, age 52, said that she was in the company of her son John and his wife Tony when they saw a strange UFO meeting the same descriptions as the Cash Landrum craft. Their sighting was 20 miles east of the encounter location and 30 minutes before the Cash Landrum incident. Jerry McDonald, an oil field worker who lived at Dayton, Texas, was out in his backyard when an object flew over Dayton, Texas. He said that he first thought it was a Goodyear blimp until he got a closer look. He also said it was a diamond-shaped craft with two twin torches shooting bright blue flames out the back. It also had two bright lights on its front with a red one in the center. His sighting occurred on that same night, just before the Cash Landrum incident. Bell McGee, whose occupation was a bakery clerk, happened to be at her Eastgate, Texas home about eight miles west of Dayton, Texas that evening. She saw a bright light in the sky traveling toward New Caney, Texas, on the same evening as the Cash Landrum incident. So there were multiple witnesses who confirmed both the presence of a UFO in the area that night, as well as a large number of helicopters in the area. And when we turned to Colonel Saran, he found the key witnesses credible. In a partially declassified report he filed afterwards, he had this to say. Ms. Landrum and Ms. Cash were credible. The Department of the Army Inspector General Investigator felt, four-line censored, the policeman, Sergeant Walker, and his wife were also credible witnesses. There was no perception that anyone was trying to exaggerate the truth. All interviewees were extremely cooperative and eager to be helpful in any manner. So, on the one hand, we have no records of any large-scale helicopter operations being conducted in the area that night. But, on the other hand, we have multiple credible witnesses reporting both the UFO and the helicopters. Is there any way to square those two things? One way, which has occurred to at least some people, is that the helicopters may not have been ours. That is to say, they may have been of extraterrestrial origin. And before you dismiss the possibility, consider that any species capable of flinging itself between the stars would certainly be able to manufacture helicopters. They could then use them as camouflage vehicles to maneuver in our atmosphere without drawing suspicion. However, there's a flaw in that argument, which is, if the aliens made helicopters, why would they have an obvious UFO too? Because the UFO itself would draw suspicious attention to their activities. So I don't find that argument persuasive. 
But I see another much more credible way of reconciling the two facts. It could easily be that this was a covert operation, perhaps one performed by the U.S. military or perhaps performed by some other group. In either case, it might be an off-the-books operation, meaning no publicly accessible records were kept, and those involved either weren't contacted or had been told to keep quiet. That could include officials from the Federal Aviation Administration. They also could have been ordered to keep quiet, or since helicopters were involved, they may have been simply flying under the radar because helicopters can fly really low. In fact, if you were going to do a covert operation, the week between Christmas and New Year's would be a good time to do it because people were out of their regular routine, many would be away on visits, and not as much attention would be being paid. It wouldn't even need to be a covert operation that was based on land, because this part of Texas is just off the Gulf of Mexico. So it could have been a test of some kind that was being conducted over the Gulf, over the sea, and then something went wrong and it strayed over the land, requiring low-flying helicopters to follow in a search-and-rescue capacity. In any event, between the witnesses who were eyewitnesses, and the later physical evidence of heat effects like the dashboard handprint and the burned road surface, I don't see good evidence that Cash and Landrum were inventing or exaggerating their experience. It sounds like they were telling the truth. Then let's look at the second premise of Brian Dunning's argument, that they mistakenly attributed their illnesses to whatever it was they saw. What are the odds that this was just a coincidence? I don't think the odds of coincidence are good at all. Uh, While it's true that correlation is not causation, so that it's possible that a person might see something strange and then coincidentally get sick, when three people get sick with the same symptoms at the same time, that goes beyond random chance. In this case, Betty, Vicky, and Colby all reported coming down with symptoms at the same time within hours of seeing the object, and they reported having the same symptoms, nausea, vomiting, sunburn, blistering, and so forth. That strongly suggests that all three were exposed at the same time to an agent that caused these symptoms. How do we know they weren't just lying about all this? Well, we already have evidence of their truthfulness about the incident itself, as we saw with independent witnesses to different aspects of it and the effects left on the car and the roadway. Because their symptom levels varied, they didn't need to seek immediate medical attention, so we don't have early complete records of everything they experienced. But Betty was so sick that she went to the hospital within a few days, and we have medical records of what she was experiencing, including photographs of her hair falling out, and the remnants of blistering on her arms, and these revealed that the blistering was quite extensive. How does skeptic Brian Dunning deal with that? I won't be able to do a point-by-point response to everything he claims, but I'll deal with what I consider his strongest argument. Basically, he uses a two-pronged move. First, he tries to attribute Betty's hair loss to a natural cause, And second, he tries to isolate part of Vicky's testimony. Here's what he says about Betty's hair loss. The doctor's notes all agreed she had alopecia areata, confirmed by a skin biopsy and microscopic examination of the follicles. Alopecia areata is an autoimmune disease that causes patches of your hair to fall out. 
It can be temporary or permanent. It can be patchy or total, and usually more on one side of the scalp than the other. As this was the conclusion of multiple doctors who actually examined and tested her, we can probably put that part of the story to bed. Her hair loss had a prosaic medical explanation unrelated to the UFO. He says that very confidently, like it settles the matter, but it does nothing of the kind. The name alopecia areata sounds impressive because it's in Latin, but it's just a symptom description. Alopecia is Latin for a falling out of the hair or baldness, and areata just means affecting an area. Alopecia areata just means baldness affecting a particular area of skin, as opposed to alopecia totalis, which is where you lose all the hair on your scalp, or alopecia universalis, where you lose all the hair on your scalp and on your body. So alopecia areata just means you have one or more bald patches on your scalp. The causes of alopecia areata are not well understood. There appears to be a genetic component, and it's thought, as Dunning says, to frequently be an autoimmune disease, meaning that your immune system accidentally attacks your hair follicles and causes the hair to fall out. But that doesn't explain why your immune system attacks them. And in this case, it doesn't explain why 75% of Betty's hair suddenly fell out right after she saw the object. However, alopecia is one of the symptoms of acute radiation syndrome. If you get three or more grays of radiation, a gray being a measurement of ionizing radiation, then alopecia is likely to follow. And radiation-induced alopecia occurs in patches. Typically, just parts of your hair fall out, not all of it. So, radiation-induced alopecia looks like non-radiation-induced alopecia areata. And if you check the medical literature, like I did, it's frank about the fact that the two can be difficult to distinguish. So, by the way he presents a medical term for Betty's condition, Brian Dunning makes it sound like there's nothing noteworthy here, but he's neglecting the possibility that Betty actually had radiation-induced alopecia, or that radiation caused her immune system to go haywire and cause alopecia areata. What about the fact that Vicky also had a lot of her hair fall out at the same time? There's no way two women would suddenly develop alopecia, and that would be random chance. No, but that's where Dunning attempts to partition Vicky's testimony. He says... About eight months later, Landrum's story changed, and she too claimed to have lost her hair and several fingernails. But she never sought treatment for this, never mentioned it earlier, and no photographs or medical records ever supported it. The first thing I want to know is, how can he say all that stuff so confidently? She never sought treatment for alopecia? She never mentioned it for eight months until August of 1980? No medical records support it? No photographs support it? Does Brian Dunning have access to Vicki Landrum's complete medical history? How did he gain access to it, considering that she's been dead for 15 years? Did he spend all that time between January and August of 1980 with her? Does he have all the photographs taken of her during the period? This is just grandstanding, and his argument is not to be taken seriously. What Dunning means is that he 
is not aware of any documentation of this condition before August of 1980, but what he is aware of prior to that point is not particularly significant. And the event in August 1980 that he's referring to was the interview the three had at Bergstrom Air Force Base, which was done in the presence of an Air Force stenographer who took everything down word for word. During the interview, this exchange occurred. Captain John Camp, USAF. Okay, now did you suffer any hair loss at all? Vicki Landrum. Yes, sir, I lost my hair. But now my hair didn't come out until about, it was about six weeks after the incident when I, about a month, about a month after the incident, my hair started coming out and it's just come back. I haven't, I mean, this is the way it looks since it's come back. I had soft, manageable, easy hair too. I mean, it was extra fine hair. It was a little like baby hair and it was, it was kind of, you know, wavy, curly. I could do anything with it. After it come out and it came back, this is what I got. Because I'm ashamed to even go to the grocery store. And a bit later. Captain Camp, let me ask you regarding the skin problems and your hair loss. Have you talked to any other physician about that? Vicki Landrum. No, nothing but a uh, doctor. What's his name? Betty Cash. Shoney. Dr. Shoney. So I find Brian Dunning's claim that Vicki changed her story to be unfounded and unlikely. The August interview is simply the first record that Dunning was aware of. He had no evidence of what happened before, which means his claim is based on an unacknowledged argument from silence. During the interview, she apparently demonstrated the difference in her regrown hair texture, which would be confirmed from older photographs, and she indicates she had previously spoken about it with Dr. Shoney, which is something that could be checked. Also, Vicky's statement that her hair didn't start falling out for about four to eight weeks after the event is consistent with the way radiation poisoning works, because after the initial symptoms manifest, there's often a latency period of about a month before additional symptoms manifest. Furthermore, in the complaint prepared by her lawyer, hair loss and regrowth of a different texture is listed as one of the effects Vicky suffered. In preparing that complaint, her lawyer, Peter Gersten of New York, uh, would have known and would have informed Vicky that they would have to prove in court both that her hair fell out and that it grew back differently, which strongly suggests that they had a way of proving this, either through medical records, independent witnesses, or photographs. I thus find Brian Dunning's allegation wholly inadequate. It sounds like the three were simply victims of radiation poisoning, which would indicate Something unusual happened to them. How does Dunning deal with that? He says it wasn't radiation poisoning, and he's emphatic on that point. We do know that acute radiation poisoning was not involved, as the UFO proponents generally assert. We know this because doctors unanimously agree that if the reported symptoms had been caused by radiation, a fatal dose would have been necessary, and all three would be dead. But they all lived normal lifespans so we know the cause of the reported symptoms was not radiation. Sounds really confident, doesn't he? Doctors unanimously agree that it wasn't acute radiation syndrome. Well, here's what Betty's own doctor had to say. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that Betty was exposed to high doses of radiation. As to what the source was, I can't exactly say. 
Dr. Brian McClelland has been Betty's physician since 1985. I don't know. All I know is that she received high doses of radiation. And it wasn't just Dr. McClelland. MUFON also had a radiologist review the patient's medical records, and he concluded, We have strong evidence that these patients suffered damage secondary to ionizing radiation. It is also possible that there was an infrared or ultraviolet component as well. So despite what Brian Dunning said, doctors were not unanimous. This is just another case of Brian Dunning overconfidently announcing insufficiently researched falsehoods as truth. The fact is, radiation doesn't affect everyone the same way. I've read books about radiation disasters, like James Mahaffey's book, Atomic Accidents, and sometimes people receive what you'd think would be fatal doses, and yet they survive. It really depends on the way in which you were exposed, not just how much radiation was involved. In the 2008 episode of UFO Hunters, they interviewed Betty's physician, Dr. McClelland, again, and he had this to say. There's absolutely no doubt in my mind that she had high-energy radiation exposure. Betty Cash is admitted to Parkway Hospital three times within a month after the incident, with severe burns, blistering, and hair loss. She claims these symptoms are a result of her encounter with the diamond-shaped craft. There are a number of skeptics on this case who just say that she could not have been irradiated because she would be dead. What what do you say to that? Well, all radiation does not kill you. It depends on the intensity of the source and the duration of your exposure. And those two factors made it so that she suffered burns, she suffered some superficial damage, but she didn't have a lethal dose. How much radiation would it take to cause these kinds of effects? You'd have to estimate her getting somewhere between one and two grays of radiation, which is a way of measuring absorption. So it's not a lethal dose, but it's enough to hurt you. A gray is a unit for measuring ionizing radiation, as we said. It's equivalent to one joule of radiative energy per kilogram of body weight. Dr. McClelland, who treated Betty for years, believed she had been exposed to between one and two grays. Personally, I would have thought three grays, because hair loss becomes more prominent after three grays, but he's the doctor and I'm not. In any event, dosages between one and three grays are unlikely to kill you, and they have rapid onset times of just a few hours. So Betty could have easily had that much radiation and survived, and Vicky and Colby could have had even less. I, therefore, just don't think Brian Dunning's confident assertion that radiation was not involved holds water. Are there any arguments for their symptoms being due to something other than ionizing radiation? There are. Uh, In doing research, I found a message board with a post by a skeptical UFO investigator named Brad Sparks. He was an aerospace researcher rather than a physician, and he argued that it wasn't ionizing radiation they were exposed to. He did accept that their symptoms were caused by exposure to something, but he thought it was more likely a chemical agent that mimicked the effects of radiation exposure. I'm skeptical of this since the best medical opinions I've seen favor radiation exposure. Also, Mr. Sparks appears to be reasoning from facts that weren't all accurate. For example, he thought he remembered that Betty had an elevated white blood cell count, which would not favor radiation as radiation would be expected to lower her white blood cell count. However, Mr. Sparks' memory was mistaken. Both 
Betty and Vicky were reported to have abnormally low white blood cell counts, which would be consistent with radiation. I thus find radiation more plausible, though ultimately it doesn't matter to me for purposes of this investigation whether it was radiation or a chemical emitted by the object, and we'll have a link to Mr. Sparks' argument so you can read it for yourself. It sounds like you're leaning in favor of something exotic having happened in this case. If so, what's your best theory about what it was? Would the UFO have been of extraterrestrial or terrestrial origin? In Project Moondust, Kevin Randall is doubtful that we can form conclusions about this case, but one argument he has, which we quoted earlier, would lean in favor of an extraterrestrial origin for the unidentified flying object. He thought that it was likely that in the 40-plus years since the incident, the type of craft they encountered would have come to light if it was a secret government project, but such a craft hasn't come to light, and that could point towards it being of extraterrestrial origin. What do you make of that argument? I'm skeptical of it. Uh, In the first place, I don't know that it's likely that the object would have come to light. I think that the government is doing experiments with classified tech all the time, most of which we never learn about. Uh, We also know that the government has experimented with nuclear-powered flight. That much has come out. And even if Randall is right, and we do learn about most such tech, that doesn't mean we would have learned about this type of tech. It could be that this was one of the ones that not much research was done on. There could simply be a prototype test system that didn't work out, so it never entered mainstream military usage, and thus we never heard about it, because it just never leaked out. And in fact, maybe this incident helped kill the program, and that's why it didn't go anywhere and we never heard about it. But there is another reason I'm skeptical of Randall's argument. Suppose that this was an extraterrestrial craft that zoomed in on East Texas in December of 1980. That could have caused the military to try to intercept it. If it had been flying fast and at a high altitude, they would have sent jets. But since it was flying low and slow, they could have sent helicopters. But would they have been able to scrounge up this many interceptor helicopters during the Christmas holiday? That seems at least a little unlikely. Whether it was 10 helicopters or 23, that's a good number to come up with on spur-of-the-moment notice during the holidays. I mean, if this was a planned operation, they could have had that many on hand. But if it was just spur-of-the-moment when a UFO zooms in from outer space, that would be hard. So it seems more likely to me that this would have been pre-planned as an operation rather than spur-of-the-moment. And that would point to the craft being of terrestrial origin, like some kind of secret project. So what can we say about the Cash Landrum UFO encounter from the faith perspective? Well, if the object was of extraterrestrial origin, then that would mean that intelligent aliens exist. Uh, the Christian faith, despite what Vicky and Betty thought, does not preclude the existence of intelligent aliens. Uh, good or bad, they would simply be more of God's children. And if you'd like to learn more about the religious implications of alien life, you can go back and listen to episode 55 on aliens and religion. On the other hand, if the craft was terrestrial in origin, then I think Betty, Vicky, and Colby have a claim against the government. 
They may not have been able to prove to a court satisfaction that the government was responsible for what happened to them, but being absolved of legal responsibility doesn't mean being absolved of moral responsibility. I understand the need to keep classified projects secret for reasons of national security, but they could have come in, sworn the three to secrecy under one of America's national security laws, and threatened them with fines or jail time if they ever spilled the beans, and then help them figure out what happened and how much radiation they were exposed to, as well as paying their medical bills. And I agree with Betty that they could have done at least that much. Jimmy, what's your bottom line on the Cash Landrum UFO incident? The first examinations of the Cash Landrum UFO incident that I looked at when researching this mystery were the ones by Kevin Randall and Brian Dunning. So my first impression was such that I was entirely prepared to write this one off and conclude we didn't have good evidence for anything exotic having happened here. However, the more I looked at Brian Dunning's arguments on Skeptoid, the less impress impressed I was. He just overconfidently announces poorly researched falsehoods that serve his narrative. And despite how much I respect Kevin Randall, I think we can draw at least preliminary conclusions in this case. It looks to me like the experience really did happen to Betty, Vicky, and Colby. It looks to me like the exposure involved ionizing radiation, though I couldn't rule out a chemical agent. And it seems to me that the most probable explanation is that they stumbled into an accident involving a classified government project rather than a genuinely extraterrestrial craft. Jimmy, what further resources can we offer to the listeners and viewers? We'll have links to John Schusler's book, The Cash Landrum Incident, also George Dudding's book, The Cash Landrum UFO Incident, Jerome Clark's book, The UFO Encyclopedia, Kevin Randall's book, Project Moondust, James Mahaffey's book, Atomic Accidents. We'll have links to the uh, QFOS's file on Cash Landrum, also um, information from Kevin Randall on Cash Landrum, including an interview with him. We'll have the Unsolved Mysteries segment and the UFO Hunters episode, another early interview with the witnesses, and an early audio interview with Vicki and Colby, as well as Wikipedia information on the Cash Landrum incident, uh, an article by the Skeptical Inquirer, Brian Dunning's Skeptoid podcast, as well as information on Alopecia Areata, Bergstrom Air Force, uh, both parts of the Bergstrom Air Force Base interview and the Cash Landrum legal documents, as well as Brad Sparks's uh, critique of the ionizing radiation theory. Great. Well, that's it from us for this time. What are your theories about the Cash Landrum UFO incident? You can let us know by visiting sqpn.com or the Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World Facebook page, sending an email to mysterious at sqpn.com, sending a tweet to at mys underscore world, visiting the StarQuest Discord community at sqpn.com slash discord, or calling our mysterious feedback line at 619-738-4515. That's 619-738-4515. And I want to say a special word of thanks to Oasis Studio 7 for the video and animation work in this episode. You can check out the work they do by going to youtube.com slash Aiken. Um, also, if you have a need for video and animation work, including design work, 
uh, go to their website, check them out, check out what they do for Mysterious World, and then you can go to their website and hire them yourself. While you're at my website, I am trying to grow my channel, and we're currently working on getting up to 40,000 subscribers, so I'd really appreciate it if you hit the like button to help let other people know about Mysterious World, and also if you would subscribe and hit the bell notification so that you always get a notification, whether it's for Mysterious World or one of the other videos I put up. Also, I want to say thank you to uh, Melanie and Isabella Bettinelli for their voice work on this episode. Jimmy, what's our next episode going to be about? Well, next week we're going to stay in Texas and other states of the American South, but we're going to be going back in time and talking about a secret society that was active in the area in the 1850s and 1860s. The secret society was known as the Knights of the Golden Circle, and they played, they had really big ambitions, and they played a key role leading up to and during the American Civil War. Folks, be sure to get your very own Mysterious World t-shirt, mug, and more in our merchandise shop at sqpn.com slash merch. You can find links to Jimmy's resources from our discussion on our show notes at mysterious.fm slash 254. And remember, to help us continue to produce the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Jimmy Akin's Mysterious World is also brought to you in part by Catechism Class, a dynamic weekly podcast journey through the catechism of the Catholic Church by Greg and Jennifer Willits. It's the best book club, coffee talk, and faith study group all rolled into one. Find it in any podcast directory. And by Tim Shevlin's Personal Fitness Training for Catholics, providing spiritual and physical wellness through personalized nutrition, workout and prayer programs, and daily accountability check-ins. Learn more by visiting FitCat Catholics.com. Until next time, Jimmy Aiken, thank you for exploring with us our mysterious world. Thanks, Tom. And once again, I'm Dom Bettinelli. Thank you for listening to Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World on StarQuest. If you've enjoyed Jimmy Aiken's Mysterious World, you'll also enjoy another StarQuest Network show, The Secrets of Doctor Who. Find it wherever you can find podcasts or at sqpn.com slash Doctor Who.